2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Mortaza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to have two distinguished guests with me: Dr. Elena Gertzman and Dr. Barbara Rosenwein. Elena Gertzman is a professor of art history at Case Western Reserve University. Professor Gatesman specializes in medieval art and issues of memory, perception, multisensory reception and medieval concepts of emotion and affectivity. Barbara Rosenwein is an American historian who is a professor emerita of history at Loyola University Chicago. She's an expert in medieval history, and she has written a number of, number of influential books. She's also an expert on the history of emotions. And today, they're here to talk with us about a wonderful book they wrote called *The Middle Ages in 50 Objects, published by Cambridge University Press. Alina and Barbara, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you very much. It's fun to be here. Thank you for having us
3: uh before we start talking about the book uh and before i start i'd say to the listeners i wish they could see the book it's an it's not an object to read but it's something to see as well it's a visual feast there are 50 beautiful pictures or 50 objects with a beautiful picture which you will talk about some of them but before talking about the book can you tell us a little about yourself how you became interested in the history of middle ages and also art history
1: well, I'll begin. Uh, I became interested in the Middle Ages as an undergraduate when I had a wonderful course with a wonderful teacher, Lester Little, and then I decided I wanted to be like him. So I went on and got my PhD and remained very, very enthusiastic and, and still remain very enthusiastic about the field, though I have now branched out into what I call, uh, what is called the history of emotions. And I'm interested in integrating the Middle Ages into a broader framework uh, of the the whole history of uh, emotions insofar as I can do the kind of research that's necessary for it, which means I have to be able to read the languages, which limits me to some extent. A lot. Um, but anyway, um, and uh, I'll let Lena, uh, Alina uh, tell us about her, her own experiences.
2: Sure. Well, um, so I have, uh, well, I grew up in Estonia. I grew up in Thailand, and that is a medieval place. And so I guess I love the middle ages from the very moment my grandfather took me to see paintings in the old town um i have worked broadly on jewish and christian arts of the long middle ages um i've published quite a bit on all manner of things on manuscripts and on sculpture and monumental painting and on prints it's an extraordinary time period. Um, it fascinates me, it fascinated me from the very beginnings of my study of art history, and it continues to excite me to this day. So my branching currently into medieval Jewish art also, well, as Barbara said, necessitates a whole new world of languages. So I am now learning classical Hebrew, and it's, it might kill me. But um, I'm, I'm at
3: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's impossible to study the history of Middle Ages without knowing a couple of languages, <laughs> at least. Well,
1: at least. Many, many, many. Yeah. many more. Yeah. Yeah. The more, better.
3: So how did this book come about? What was the story of this book? And uh, what was the purpose of uh, publishing this beautiful book?
1: Uh, well, uh, Alina and I have known each other for quite some time. At some point during that time, the British Museum published uh, the history of the world in 100 objects, which I thought uh, was a great idea, but not terribly convincingly done. Uh, The pictures were small. They were in black and white. And uh, the explanations were very, very long. So it was a very big book, a very thick book, but not a very beautiful book. And if you're talking about the objects in the British Museum, it seemed to me, you should talk about wh- what they looked like and why they have remained and why they're in the British Museum for that matter. And because I knew Alina, and I knew her brilliant studies of medieval art, and because we were good friends, I said, we should do something. And I'll let Alina take it from here.
2: (laughs) Well, so I have been Barbara's uh, admirer long before she knew of my existence, and so when Barbara said, let's do something together, I you know, leaped with joy and said, yes, yes, absolutely, let's do it. Um, we have known each other for a while by then. We met in Chicago, and I, I taught there briefly. Um, and then I moved to teach at Case Western. And I do want to make it clear that this is a program that is jointly administered with the Cleveland Museum of Art. So it's a joint graduate program. I came here because um, of really various factors, but mainly because of the medieval collections of the museum that are among the best of the best, astonishingly. Um, so we teach with the collection. I teach among these objects. I bring my students to the galleries all the time. They become integral part of what I do. And so this kind of collection which is you know really across the street from my university it just simply seemed to call out for such a project so it's a comprehensive collection it has some gaps but it is extraordinarily rich um and i have also because i teach as i said in the galleries i've seen firsthand the way that museum goers are drawn to the medieval galleries and then I've also seen just how little they know about the objects on view there and how little they understand them despite the labels. So that really was the seed, the genesis of this project.
3: And uh oh, you wanna I, was, sorry to I
1: just would like to add that both Alina and I are terribly interested in teaching, as what she just said made clear. And so and uh, there is a, um, a didactic or better, a pedagogical purpose to this book. And that is to teach the Middle Ages, but pleasantly, kindly, beautifully, uh, making things as clear as possible, making the attraction of the field as clear as possible, and yet leaving open room for more study, more reading, more knowledge about it. Uh, Hence, you don't only have these beautiful objects in this book, but you also have small maps that orient the reader to where you are talking about. How many of our readers would know where Khorasan was? or is. And the uh, the map shows it. Of course, you have to be a little bit sophisticated to be able to read a map, but we our readers are at that level.
2: And right. I would also add, I think that, and I, you know, I don't want to speak to Barbara, but we both yearned for the the kind of true collaboration, right? The, the one that's only achievable across different disciplines, right? Different mm-hmm. fields of inquiry. So I'm an art historian. Barbara is a historian. Um, and this this is the kind of collaboration that really allowed us, at least it allowed me to break out from the confines of my own narrow scholarly expertise and really learn. And we we'll learn from each other quite a bit, I think. Yeah, it's
1: more
2: from Barbara than she from me.
1: Yeah,
3: absolutely. I think based on what you have just said, it's quite clear why the listeners need to have the book in hand. (laughs) So, (laughs) again, I can't emphasize how great this book is. Um, So, let's, you you mentioned Cleveland Museum of Art. Um, First of all, let's talk about the methodology in this. So, you've chosen 50 objects, and it's not, as you mentioned, not only artistic, but it's also the history of the Middle Ages. So what was the organizing principle, the methodology there? And uh, how, why did you choose 50 objects to sort of represent the history of Middle Ages, which is, roughly speaking, a thousand years of history? It's a broad question, so the floor is open. <laughs>
1: uh, well, uh, Alina has already mentioned the Cleveland Institute of Art, which is a museum, which is so absolutely rich and marvellous. Secondly, the uh, we really wanted to show that the Middle Ages wasn't just Western Europe. That is a very old fashioned idea and doesn't belong anywhere on the shelves today. Secondly, uh, or thirdly, uh, 50 objects is not overwhelming. You can put this book on your cocktail table and leave it there but you could also read it from cover to cover even uh, savoring certain objects more than others perhaps and get a sense of the evolution of the middle ages across time but then also across space and Uh, topics, topically.
2: And I will say that because I know the collection so very well, um, I knew which topics we wanted to address. I knew which objects would be particularly felicitous for that uh, kind of discussion. I knew what the collection had to offer, in other words. And so uh, we came together around number 50 and we Looked for a very long time, and we balanced out objects um, you know on offer for a very long time until we came to what I think is a is a very good spectrum of
1: themes and meanings. And because we're being interviewed by you, obviously you agree. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so let's talk about uh, material culture an object-oriented history. Why is that? The Middle Ages, the medieval history, is better illuminated by its material culture, which is the approach you've taken here?
1: No, I don't think that we're saying the Middle Ages is better illuminated. Okay. by it, Though I could make an argument in that direction. Mm. But I do think that the Middle Ages is well illustrated by it, because material objects are sensible, available to the senses. You need not read to use and understand, at least in part, material objects, beautiful objects. You can just look. You can just feel. You can let your eyes caress. You can let your fingers caress. Everything in the Middle Ages is... uh, everything written even in the middle ages is material it's on a manuscript it's written by hand. It's on parchment. Parchment has a feel, actually. It has two feels because it has two different sides. And they're different parchments for different animals. And I'm talk I'm taking too long to talk. But there's very good reason to be thinking about material culture in the Middle Ages. And just one more point. The Middle Ages, unlike ourselves, identified more than five Senses, because not all the senses in medieval philosophy, theology, and even popular thought, not all the senses were physical. There were spiritual senses as well. I
2: don't know if I can add anything to this. Um, The Middle Ages is a sensual era. When I teach students, even in the museum, in front of these objects we always want to take them out of their cases. We always want to touch them. We want to hear them. We want to smell them. I'm very lucky that we do have a chance to do that. The curators allow us from time to time to do object studies. And you can tell just how much students learn from just those moments Mm. um, of of looking and hearing and smelling and touching Um, because, the Middle Ages is an object-oriented in many ways era. Maybe not more than others. Uh, maybe not just object-oriented, but there is that material pull that is extraordinarily strong.
1: And I would like you, Elena, if you wouldn't mind, to talk a little bit about uh, the wonderful um, uh, fountain that you uh, that we we did. Profile in the Middle Ages in fifty objects, and that is a great example of sound, sight, smell, and of course, even because it's a preliminary to taste.
2: Ah, uh, so it's a, that is something that I wish we could, we were able to show. So it's an extraordinary object; it's really one of a kind that survives and we have it and it is a truly multi-sensory object it's it's um it's a table fountain um it's utterly gorgeous it was meant to be seen it was meant to be heard as the streams go and hit the little wheels that spin and they ring the bells It was meant to be surrounded by the smells of, say, the feast hall. It was meant to be touched. Everything about this object involves the senses. I will say that we're launching um, something. We're launching a HoloLens app that will allow us, I hope, to get a little bit closer to this kind of perception this multi-sensory perception where we can you know pop on our lenses and animate the fountain in real time within its reconstructed environment and hear it and see it and if all goes well in the next couple of years maybe even touch it
3: Wow, that that's amazing.
2: <laughs> and none of this actually, this idea would not have come along without me writing this book with
3: Barbara. Mm-hmm. It it is really fascinating it's... because when I listen to you, and I, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, that nothing, uh, it was like a, a domination of the Catholic Church with the people. Art was that, and then suddenly there was the Renaissance. But when I look at this picture, sometimes I see manuscripts. Just I guess a couple of weeks ago I came across this manuscript. It was a digital manuscript. I think it was called Blue Book of Hours. Sure. The manuscript was it was it would just blew my, blew my mind where I just well, was just looking at it for hours, going through the pages, zooming in, and of course, all the objects that you have put in this book, which is only the tip of the iceberg. Um let let me go to the next uh, part of this interview. So the book comes in four sections of 50 objects in four parts. The first part is the holy and the faithful. The second part, the sinful and the spectral third daily life and its fictions and fourth death and its aftermath. So can you talk about this structure and why you decided to kind of classify these objects into these four parts?
1: Well, as you said, uh, the Middle Ages is often thought of in terms of doom and gloom. So we didn't want to have a section called doom and gloom. (laughs) Uh, We wanted to have uh, sections that did deal with uh, difficult topics like death uh, and its aftermath, which is less difficult for many in the Middle Ages. We also wanted to uh, point out, make clear that there was a daily life in the Middle Ages, that while uh, perhaps some of the people in the Middle Ages were depressed, as many are today, there were a lot of pleasures and a lot of joys and a lot of things to enjoy in the Middle Ages. uh I'll let, I'll let Ali talk about the, the first two then. them. Uh, well, so
2: I want I to, to add that we really played around with the structure and we wanted, you know, it, the structure was predicated on the objects we chose. Right. Um, and we wanted to have them stand on their own, but also place them in conversation with one another. And so you will see this mirroring of the structure, you know, the holy and the faithful, the sinful and the spectral. So there are just some juxtapositions, but also conversations Um, we wanted really with. I think this structure allows us to give you a fairly holistic vision of the Middle Ages or as holistic as we can. And at the same time, each object then within is is a glimpse a bit of a wellspring of this associative knowledge and this is how we've written it we started with the object and then we spun the narrative that touches on other objects within those parts and then outside of them and as barbara said before this is how this book is meant to be read you can sit down and you can read it to cover to cover or you can just pick an object a day Uh, you can bring it to any museum and find something similar and read it in tandem with what you've seen
1: but wouldn't uh, it have been odd had we not talked about the holy (laughs) wouldn't it have been odd had we not talked about the unholy (laughs) Uh, about daily life i mean what what in a way yes the objects told us the categories. Of course the objects were chosen, carefully chosen, and I must credit uh Elena for for that uh more than myself. I I agreed or disagreed in some instances, but she did a wonderful job I think because she knew the collection so very, very well. But also uh because that collection itself uh had some of these ideas in mind, uh, some of these topics in mind, so that uh, the, these uh, do uh, represent much of what we know about the Middle Ages, not absolutely everything, of course. Alina has just written a marvelous, marvelous book on emptiness, and uh, that has nothing to do with <laughs> Well, it has to do with absence of objects. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was a topic that was not, uh, <laughs> not that we could cover. But uh, it, actually, uh, even uh, emptiness uh, is implied by uh, some of these objects themselves and the way that they existed in space and in a space that might itself have been uh, to the viewers quite abstract and we saw it as very important to give the context. Uh, What what were these These objects are very beautiful in and of themselves, but looking at them just as themselves, they mean rather little to us in the modern world, just as I'm sure that in um, maybe just 100 years, uh, students will take a look at a typewriter and not know what the context was in which... That made some sense. What
2: letters are? They? What I think that's done. I think this is <laughs> this has already occurred. I and mean, I would also say that the structure is in a way informed by our own interests and our own expertise. You know, if you read the book, you will see that a scholar of emotions um, has written <laughs> quite a bit of it. Uh, You can see that someone very interested in interactive devotional sculpture has written quite a bit of it. The third section, Daily Life and its Fictions, in particular, was important to me. Um, Medieval objects are often indiscriminately used in classes uh, not taught by art historians as illustrations of daily life as if they are not ideologically fraught, as if they somehow can tell a very straightforward story of what life in the Middle Ages really was. And this is where the part of fictions comes in, is that every single object like this, really every single object, has to be unpacked very carefully. Nothing is straightforward, nothing is as it seems, and nothing certainly is illustrative.
1: That's absolutely right, and it is. And I have a textbook uh, of the Middle Ages, and I have avoided as fully as possible to make that cardinal mistake of saying, "Ah, this is how medieval people loved. They loved in orchards. <laughs> yeah, very, very
2: beautifully dressed peasants plowed the fields. Exactly."
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, another, I just want to kind of debunk the myth a little bit because, um, uh, you know, before before we started recording, um, and Alina, you were not there. Barbara just joined the platform earlier. We were talking about I studied English literature, and my expertise was on the sixteenth, uh, sorry, seventeenth and eighteenth century uh, British literature. So it has almost nothing to do with the Middle Ages, but I was always fascinated by the Middle Ages. And I became sort of an enthusiast in the history of Middle Ages. And I read just different books and talk to people about that. And um, I was also plagued myself by the idea that the Middle Ages is exclusively a European-centered time period. So when it's the Middle Ages, it's Europe, as if the rest of the world did not exist. And again, when I before reading this book... I, expect, I was just amazed to see objects from uh, from a Mongol Empire from Islam Byzantine several of them from Iran where I come from originally and I said yeah it makes sense these countries also existed they also had a history they were quite influential in the Middle Ages uh, there were very rich cities and influential cities in in in, in Africa at that time and one of the great things about this book is that it sort of broadens the horizons. It's not only objects from Europe, it's from all over the world. So can you talk about these geographies or why you decided to kind of expand that horizon, let's say?
1: Uh, we're part of a, of a movement almost, I think, amongst medievalists to break out of the European uh, uh, straitjacket. Uh, the old uh, textbooks dealt just with Western Europe, France, Germany, Italy, because of the papacy, a little bit of Spain. Uh, what about Bulgaria? What about uh, the Byzantine world? Oh, yeah, let's pop them into one chapter, a whole Islamic world and Byzantine world into one chapter going from 500 to 1500. It was crazy. It made no sense. Why even bring them in if they have nothing to do with the Middle Ages proper? But they did. They did. They were enormously important even for that straightjacketed Western Europe. So we wanted to... Uh, participate in this larger vision the larger vision still hasn't affected so many textbooks I'm glad to say it has affected my own but many many textbooks are still Europe in the Middle Ages, the European Middle Ages as though teachers can never teach the whole period but as you can see you can teach it in 50 objects I mean you can you can do it in 25 words or less if you want to. So um, that those are some of the reasons why. And I'm sure Alina has more to offer. No, I think uh,
2: this is exactly right. Um, I think we were mindful of being. We were careful not to impose the framework of the Middle Ages to the rest of the world, because the idea in and of itself comes out of European and American way of conceiving history. Um, So a lot of uh, cultures, flourishing cultures all over the world and what we think of as the Middle Ages would certainly never refer to themselves as the Middle Ages. So, we needed to be very careful and respectful of these other cultures. But we also wanted to reach out to those that were interconnected. I guess interconnected is a good way of putting it. So, we wanted to give a glimpse of that interconnected world. Um, you know, global is a fraught term, and I don't really want to use it here. Uh, but it allows you to really open the door doors to the kind of, you know, intercultural openness, and also in our case, know, transdisciplinary openness. So we ranged broadly in geographies, and we ranged broadly temporally to allow the reader to glimpse bits of that world. And these are shifting bits, right? All of these geographies were shifting. All of the, you know, political affiliations that we talk about were shifting as well. So it was the world in flux, in this thousand years in flux or more. Um, and that that's what we tried to do, to give a clear sense of that.
1: Yes, and I think that the maps help with that because you take a look at, you know, the Byzantine Empire in one period and then you take a look Whoa, it's not the same Byzantine Empire. And Bulgaria seems to have taken over much of what used to be part of the Byzantine Empire and so on, so that you really do get a sense of this kaleidoscope of cultures that are shifting and uh, uh, and yet... Uh, uh, are influencing each other and are not always at war.
3: Um, I will ask a couple of questions and then we'll talk about some of the objects in the book. Um, you both you both teach and you love teaching. Uh, how do you envision this book to be used in classes? Or how can teachers use it as a textbook in class? I'll let
2: Barbara start, I
1: think. Well, uh, I should say that I've have retired, so I'm professor emerita. But I do love teaching, so there. Um, I uh, I would bring it in as a, as a uh, not as a textbook, but as a supplementary book of medieval art and culture and uh, so it could be an assigned book it's not all that expensive Uh, alongside other books readings texts and so on i uh i also think though that it belongs outside of the classroom i don't think just 18 19 and 20 year olds want to learn about the middle ages Um, Though I don't know your age, Mortessa, and I know that you're not elderly, I would say that you're beyond 18, 19, 20, but you're interested in the Middle Ages, and how are you going to find out about it? And I think that this this is a good way to just kind of enter into it and find out about it. So it's teaching, but it's not necessarily teaching in the classroom. Mm -hmm.
2: I I don't know if I can put it any better. Um, You know, we conceived of it not as the textbook. We conceived of it as part of a variety of core readings for any course, really undergraduate or graduate. I use the book in both. Um, I use it differently in both, but I use it with great success. And it, of course, doesn't simply belong in the classroom. It does belong in the hands of a museum goer. And not just a Cleveland museum goer. It belongs in the hands of someone who goes to see the objects at the Met or at the Getty or at the British Museum. Um, anywhere, really, it belongs in the hands of someone who is walking medieval streets. Of Thailand or of or Paris or, or you know who is walking around Pisa and wants to know what else and what else is like it and what else is there to learn. I mean, we talk a lot about it's a well-worn term, right? Public humanities, but in a way, this is the kind of project like this, right? It really seeks to bring the ideas of our field to life for curious general audiences the ones who love reading and love learning and don't necessarily have any expertise in the middle ages at all but just intellectual curiosity
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
2: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even
0: say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer, they've changed. So you don't have to.
1: Download the new Bumble now.
3: Mm. Um, and again, well, uh, to complete, to add to what you just said, I, I, it's it's a book you can have, you know, on your coffee table. You can open it from the middle, look at one object, read it. You not only learn something about that object, the artistry, but also the time curating was created and the area and the geography as well. Um, so that that and and as Barbara said, yeah, I'm not 18, but anybody can read it, right? Even if it's not difficult to read, it's actually quite inviting the book. And I've had it in my uh um in my living room and when my friends come into my place, they just pick it up because the cover, I wish again the listeners could see it. So I do encourage you to just Google the book at least. The cover is again very inviting. You just pick it up, you browse through it, and you know, before you know, you've been looking at the book for at least thirty minutes. You're just going through the pages, even if you're not reading it. You're looking at the objects there.
1: <laughs> and if you right? are reading it, for each object, you're only reading three pages, or or or, or, or not not more much more than that. Mm-hmm. So it's short. It's short and sweet, uh, it, and yet uh, you learn a lot. I uh, think.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Hope so. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So now let's talk about some of these objects. I Before the interview, I remember I sent you an email because I'm from Iran. I was biased to choose some particular objects from there, but I'm going to put my bias aside. So I'll let you just talk about any of the objects that are of interest to you. Uh, I know it's a bit challenging because you need to describe the object, but maybe you can say the number of the objects so that people can, you know, later on, uh, more easily be able to find it. And all the objects are in the museum, uh, in Cleveland's Museum of Art. So I'm hoping people can just, Log onto the website and see the objects if they, they wish. So uh what are your favorite objects here?
2: Well let's cater to your bias. How about <laughs> just a minute with you know we can talk about the incense burner? It's number yeah. six in the book. Um and it's an extraordinary object. I have never seen anything quite like it. And in fact, we were so Worried about it not being like others, we contacted a colleague who is a specialist in medieval Islamic art to make sure that we were, in fact, right, that we were looking exactly at what we thought we were looking at. Um, you know, when I came to the museum, so it's this gorgeous incense burner. It's about know, uh, 14 by 13 inches, uh, maybe, and maybe four and a half thick. Um, And it's it's just this glorious, it's it's a copper alloy body of what used to be described as a lion when I first came to the museum. And now it's called the feline incense burner. Then we think it's a lynx, actually. It has these adorable tufts in its triangular ears. And uh, just the body that is completely covered in arabesques. And, uh, you know, the tail is curved and incised and you can remove the beast's neck and head. And uh, this is how this is how it's used. This is where you put uh, the burning, the incense and hot coals and then the smoke wafts through the piercings in on its body. And uh, we also find, so we find an inscription on it, right, Barbara, in cufix script from Quran, which is just an extraordinary thing to find on this figurative uh, beast, um, and it comes from a surah, I think, called Congregation. Um, and if I, uh, it, it's the one. It's the one that that tells the the devout uh, to to scatter in the land when the prayer is finished to scatter in the land and see God's bounty. And so, just as the smoke scatters through the air, the devout are to scatter wow. through the land. And it's just, it's a, it's beautiful visually, it's beautiful textually, it's beautiful culturally, it's just this beautiful semiotically. It's just a beautiful object. I love it.
1: Yes, and we might add that it also probably was uh, used in a uh, mosque, and that is also unusual to have an anthropomorphic or actually a zoomorphic mm-hmm. uh, object in a mosque. So it shows uh, um, creativity, freedom, uh and even a good sense of humor, mm-hmm. even in the mosque, uh, where uh, uh, you would not uh, assume that you would find these things. Um, and uh, so, so I think it it really uh, is a very important uh, object for uh, for you uh, coming from. Uh, no, this isn't, uh, it's not exactly, I mean, Eastern Iran. I don't know if you've come from Eastern Iran or Western Afghanistan. We're not exactly sure where, where it is from. But it shows such freedom uh, and such combination of whimsy and seriousness uh, that I think is, is sorely lacking in the way we think about medieval culture in general and religious culture in particular.
2: Well, Barbara, what about your favorite object?
1: (laughs) Well, I was going to talk about a very plain-ish looking altar front, which is number two. And this is an altar front either from Constantinople or Ravenna, which leads us immediately to wonder what is Istanbul doing in Italy? Uh, And immediately, uh, assuming that the reader understands this uh, map, the reader sees that the Byzantine Empire actually included much of Italy uh, when this altar front was made between, say, 540 to 600. What it is, is marble. A glorious marble with striations. Very simple design with a kind of mortuary uh, motif. uh, Curtains drawn back. uh, Figures, uh, uh, crosses where figures might be under conch shells it shows those shells uh it is as it were a temple with columns and uh and the middle of those columns is a space uh, An empty space <laughs> Alina can talk about this. No, no,
2: no, you talk about it, but it is an empty space. We managed an empty space.
1: It is an empty space. And yet it is the focal point of this altar front because behind, or at least underneath, that empty space, which is really a little window, were the relics or was one relic of a saint or saints or perhaps a contact relic, and the uh, faithful would be able to have contact with this holy object. And I should point out that although Christianity has but one God, it also has people so graced by God that they hold within their virtue the grace and powers of god and so you can touch not with your fingers for goodness sake but with let's say a piece of cloth you can lower it down into this little window and touch something of the divine um and um, You can see that the altar uh, celebrates that with its iconography, um, especially the palm uh, trees in the corner, which are little bits of paradise. Um, So, uh, although it's a very simple uh, piece, It is an extremely important piece to tell us about history, namely about the Byzantine Empire, about the Byzantine Empire's uh, enormous reach into the West, about religion, about the locus of the holy. Um, I could talk more about uh, relics, but maybe I've said enough.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. should we say something about a non-devotional object, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. um But before about... you say
3: so, before so, yes. I was just—I just like to add that when you were talking about these two objects, I was just taking like a visual trip. I was whole time. I was just imagining, you know, for example, people in a mosque praying and that incense burner, uh, and then you, Barbara, when we were explaining, I was just thinking of an old. Uh, church, people kneeling down before this <laughs> altarpiece and trying maybe to touch the, <laughs> the religious relic. It, it's just fascinating how you see the history w- w- through this uh, let's object oriented history. We, we come to visualize it, we come to feel that. And I guess the audience, uh, hoping they can see one of the pictures, it's, it's just that sensory history as well the, the history of emotions that I just said we just visualize and we come to feel that history. Uh, And I could listen to you for hours, so just talk about as many objects as you want.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's not talk for hours, but uh, if we're talking about a sensual history, if we're talking Uh, about, you know, something that really transports you, I think we should talk about the mirror case. Barbara, what do you think? Um, Not a devotional piece, unless you count, you know, devotion to your beloved as a devotion, which is a different kind. So... (laughs) We have in, the, in in the book, I think it's number thirty five um we have this extraordinary piece. it's a uh ivory mirror case, you know, and you you actually see them in 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 a bunch of uh medieval collections, so they were not very 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 rare um and it's a part of the mirror case. the mirror itself is lost it would have fit on the other side, so you imagine you know since you can't see it um this this round uh this this round ivory, which is about ten centimeters, what is it four inches maybe across, and it shows um a, a man and a woman playing chess in a tent, and um you know what they're doing is really not playing chess but they're doing something that cannot be represented in this ivory. And the chess is the game of pursuit, and it's the game of love, and they're engaging exactly in that game, and their gestures are sensual, and their movements are sensual. Um, she is uh, she just captured one of his pieces, as it were, and she's holding it, she's caressing it in her hand, and then she he's holding one piece as well. And she's telling him exactly where to put it on the board. So you know that this is not not really, we're not really seeing the game of chess per se in this gorgeous tent with this magnificent couple. And the ivory pieces, so you know, so this is a mirror, you would hold it in your hand, and it's ivory, and ivory is smooth, and it responds to your touch, it warms in your hand. So it is likened in the Middle Ages to skin, to the body. So you're, you know, you're holding the body of your beloved as it were, and you're looking at this you know, interaction of the game, quote-unquote, chess. Um, and we also think about this double sensual approach in that chess pieces in the Middle Ages would have been carved, many of them, from ivory. And so we have an image of an ivory piece that is carved out of ivory itself that you yourself are holding in your hand. So there is this notion of play and of whimsy and of delight that's both intellectual and sensual. And that's the Middle Ages as well.
3: Yeah, I guess especially the facial expressions, that they're, they're quite revealing, right? They're, they're engaging in this game of love, let's say.
2: Well, I would actually uh, push back against that oh. <laughs> and say we have to be very careful with facial expressions um, on these objects that they often don't don't really mean what we think they mean. But the gestures are very telling. The bodily gestures, um, you know, the the way that he holds up the tent pole, the way that she holds the mm-hmm. chess piece—they they are healing. And now, I'm sorry.
3: And she's showing where to put the.
2: And she that shows part, exactly yeah. exactly
3: where to put it
2: here. Yes. Mm. So, in order to really see it, I suppose you have to get
1: the book. Yes, yes, it. definitely. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Is there another object, Barbara, that you'd like to talk about?
1: Um, well, uh, uh, Alina was going to talk about the uh, death of the Virgin, so mm. I'll. Um, is there one I'd like to talk about? Um, no, let's see. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but uh, let's take a look at a, a ball with engraved figures of vices. Number ah, one. That's a good one, uh, this, uh, sorry, which eight, number was that? Sorry,
3: Barbara? Eight, 18. 18. 18.
1: Yeah. Um, 18 this is a, a bronze bowl hammered punched it's incised so that the uh, vices are are uh, shown uh, uh, in incised form uh, and uh, we see uh, we see here uh, a central figure holding mirrors in both hands. She is the vice of pride, as a a written identification shows her, uh, tells us who she is. So we now know that the mirror that we just talked about also has its dangerous side. If you look too closely within this mirror and admire yourself and your beautiful face, you are showing the vice of pride. You may be uh, uh, showing the... A vice of pride, and you may be showing some other vices, and there are other vices around her, almost dancing around her they are are idolatry, anger, envy, and lust. so we get uh the uh all these are portrayed by women. Partly because the grammar of Latin makes the vices and all abstractions female, but I don't know why it does that. But uh, we also get a understanding of the crucial place of uh, of uh, uh, pride in the in the middle. But pride wasn't always considered the most important of the vices so we need to be thinking about how the vices the idea of the vices change over time Uh, and uh, uh, after uh, uh, this time uh, uh, that is this bronze bowl is late 12th uh, century Second half of the 12th century. By the 13th century, the chief vice was avarice, and we can understand the transformation because Western. I mean, this was this bowl with the engraved figures of vices was made in Germany. So we're still thinking about the West in the West uh, after. Uh, 1200 actually before that in some areas uh, but certainly in the Rhinelands in Germany uh, you get the development of a commercial society that sits very poorly with traditional ideas about what was and was not virtuous human behavior and therefore I think if you were looking at a plate carved uh engraved in uh let's say the 14th century boccaccio's time you would see uh avarice in the middle East. so this gives us a chance to think about uh vices it gives us a chance to think about the meaning of commerce in the west um actually uh In uh, Iran and Khorasan, at the same time, you have a very commercial uh, uh, society that is much more at ease with commerce. And and a lot of the uh, uh, luxuries that came into the West came in indirectly via the uh, uh, Islamic world. Um but indirectly, not, you know, not no direct trade. Uh, and um also uh I had another idea about this. I don't know what this particular plate uh was used for. Um it may have been uh used for religious purposes, um, but uh uh it may also um uh, be used uh, uh within uh, uh as storytelling devices uh it may have been uh used uh, to put up on your uh, the medieval equivalent of a mantelpiece uh to teach um so uh the uh the uses of a plate are Not always, not always just to eat something from.
2: Well, so I, I don't know how much time we have. Um, if you want to hear one more or not. Sure, oh, yeah. yes. Um, But what I actually want to do is I want to tell you about one of them. And I, then I want to ask Barbara to talk about another one. And I did not prepare this. So if it takes you by surprise, Barbara, I'm sorry. But I do want to talk about the death of the Virgin painting because we haven't talked about paintings at all. And it's a good example of how we also, you know, worked out the, the little mysteries that creep into these objects that that haven't been solved. But Barbara, after I'm done, I'd really love for you to talk about Object 48 um, because it will allow us to address the, um, it, it's a cutting from the from the uh, choral book with uh, Isaac and Esau. I think it will allow us to talk a bit about um, Judaism and its relationship with Christianity, something that we couldn't do through Jewish objects because we didn't have any at the museum so um, the one that i really <laughs> wanted to work through and i have wanted it in this book and i'm still working through it it's uh, object 45 so it's this absolutely gorgeous painting uh maybe or very early 15th century Painted in what is now modern day um, Austria uh, by Master of Heiligenkreuz, and it's the Death of the Virgin. There's a sister painting hanging in the National Gallery in DC, in Washington, DC, um, the Death of St. Clair. So it comes from that Clarison um, uh, context, and the painting is stunning. So it shows. Uh, The Virgin Mary, who is not quite dying, she's dead. Uh, She's lying on the bed. She's surrounded by the apostles. They all appeared from, you know, they rushed to her bedside um, from every corner of the world. St. Peter stands above her uh, in his white robes and he's reading the last rites. Um, Up above the gilded background parts, and we have, This small painting of Christ holding the diminutive figure, and that's Mary's soul. He is holding it lovingly like a child in his hands. And then in front of the bed, there is an empty pillow, and it's flanked by two other apostles. And this painting, it attracts a lot of people, in part because the painter loved very long digits the fingers and the toes are astonishingly disconcertingly long um and so people gather around just to look at them uh, one of the apostles is wearing eyeglasses and that's you know one of the earlier representations so that's interesting for that i always love this painting for two things one for the pillow that sits in front of the bed and It's as if that, again, empty space, (laughs) empty space that's left for the beholder, that's left for the viewer to kneel on, to join, to close that circle of the apostles. As you stand in front of the painting, you can tell that you're included in this circle. And then another figure that always fascinated me and that I think will lead very nicely into the object that Barbara will talk about is the figure closest to the Virgin, the only one that lacks a halo and that betrays the characteristics that were ascribed in a lot of medieval anti-Semitic paintings to the Jews, Uh, the large nose, the curly hair, the darker skin. And this figure stands face to face with Mary and seems to be reaching towards her. And one would imagine that this is Judas. This is how Judas was usually being portrayed. But Judas by then is dead. Judas does not fit temporarily into this narrative. So I wanted to show this painting and have the readers of the book Go at it and think about who this figure might represent. He also has very odd-looking uh, letters written, what looks like faux Hebrew, on the sleeve of his garments. So that was uh, mm. that's one of the mysteries that I wanted the readers to ponder.
3: Wow, that that's fascinating.
1: <laughs> I think so.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, 48 follows from that uh, in that it takes up a Jewish theme. It is uh, perhaps uh, initially odd, and I use that word advisedly because this is actually a um, tempera painting of an initial key in which the scene unfolds. It is a scene, an uh, in initial scene in from a choral book that shows a Jewish theme, Isaac and Esau. You all know the story of Isaac and Esau. Isaac, a great patriarch of the church, uh, and uh, uh his uh, wife uh, had uh, two sons who were born at the same time twins esau and jacob the winner of isaac's blessing is uh, the is the he to this story isaac is depicted on his deathbed he is a beautiful figure with a halo around his head. he has clearly been in this choral book Christianized. Uh, he is uh, a Yarmaka, but we won't call it that. His hat uh, is red, and he is covered by a gloriously red coverlet. Uh, so he is so striking. And the issue is, he is, his eyes closed, his mouth, uh, well, his, his head turned to the side. He is about to die. This is his deathbed. And his wife, Rebecca, sends the children in. Her favorite is Jacob, but... Isaac was first, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Esau was first born. So who will, uh, whom will uh, Isaac uh, bless? This is a picture of the one who is not blessed. His hair is all mussed up. He's got a beard and he hasn't shaved in ages. He has a a weapon? How could he have a weapon when he goes in to see his father, on his deathbed? He's clearly not going to be blessed. It is Jacob, who will go in, uh, uh, who will go in first, and who will uh, be dressed in Esau's smelly hunter's garments his hands wrapped in lambskin. And so he seems to be the firstborn, Esau. He has already received his father's blessing and Esau doesn't get it. Why this in a choral book, a Christian choral book? Because for Christians, the blessing of um, Jacob was the blessing of the new people, the uh, the not the 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 people of the New Testament. While Esau came first, he was not the blessed. Uh, however, for Jews, that was quite the contra- contrary. Jacob was blessed because he represented the Israelites. And because he represented the chosen people. So the two cultures, so, so diverse in their beliefs, actually not that diverse in their beliefs, but they thought so, uh, really uh, uh, interpreted this image in very different but in equally pious way. And the artist of this is very interesting because this comes from northern Italy, where the artist may very well have known what Jews looked like on their deathbeds. Since uh, it would be possible for a North Italian uh, Jews uh, mingled, uh, Jews were, uh, some Jews were physicians to Christians. the worlds were not so separate that the artist might not have drawn from real life experience and visual evidence
2: you can see how each object really allows us to spin a lot of different cultural narratives to take them rather in very different directions to look at things that are both represented and that are not represented because sometimes the things that are not represented right the gaps tell us a lot more about what was going on than the actual things
3: um i cannot thank you enough for uh for talking about this book the conversations are magnificent the objects were great and And just looking at the object, there are a lot of things that might escape us. But when you explain them and when you draw our attention as an art historian and also an historian of Middle Ages, you draw our attention to particular parts of those paintings or objects. It just, uh, like I said, give you a complete different understanding of the Middle Ages. Alina and Barbara, thank you so much for uh, accepting this invitation and talking about this book on New Books Network.
1: Thank
2: you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.